This podcast is an examination of the historical research of William Branham and his message cult following. William Branham was a minister in the gambling town of Jeffersonville, Indiana, just across the river from Louisville, Kentucky, as early as 1933. He came in contact with the Reverend Roy E. Davis, an official spokesperson for the 1915 Ku Klux Klan, and later Imperial Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. Davis introduced Branham to the Pentecostal faith and the art of faith healing, which would later be introduced into Branham's stage persona as he took his place among the evangelists in the post-World War II healing revival. Branham is credited by some as being a catalyst for the Latter Rain Movement and Jim Jones of People's Temple. This podcast is not sympathetic to the views of the Ku Klux Klan that William Branham held, but it is disturbing and warrants research. This podcast is an examination of that research. You can find more about this research and other topics on the website william-branham.org. Join us as we turn back the pages of time and examine the controversial issues of William Branham and his message. Valentinianism is a Gnostic Christian movement that was founded by Valentinus in the second century AD. And it was one of the most powerful Gnostic movements that rose against the early church, the Church of the Living God. Its infection was not limited to Rome, but it stretched as far as Egypt, Asia Minor, Syria, and up into northwest Africa. Valentinianism was very active well into the 4th century AD and even after the Roman Empire declared themselves to be Christian. The Valentinian system was comprised of a pyramid representing the superstructure of the celestial system or the world of aeons as they believed. At the top of this pyramid was Ogdode a combination of Egyptian gods that included eight deities worshipped in the Hermopolis uh, during the Old Kingdom, which was 2686 B.C. through 2134 B.C. In Egyptian mythology, their interaction was believed to be unbalanced, resulting in the arising of a new entity. And whenever this entity opened, it revealed Ra, the fiery sun, inside. After a long interval of rest, Ra, together with the other deities, created all other things according to this mythology. At the bottom of the Valentinian Pyramid was the foundation, Sophia. Sophia was the goddess of wisdom, or more specifically the goddess of wisdom of hidden mysteries. Sophia was believed by the Gnostics to embody the female aspect of God, and she was the lowest aeon. According to Valentinian mythology, Sophia was fallen from grace and responsible for creating the material world of sin. Combining these Egyptian gods into Christianity, the Valentinian belief system proclaimed that Christ was just a man, a pure vessel for his reception of Sophia. In the book Against Heresies, the book written by the man that Branham claimed to have been the second church-age messenger, Irenaeus describes this belief system and its heresy. 
According to Irenaeus, the Valentinians believed that Sophia descended down into the world created by her disgrace, poured herself like a fountain into Christ, and then leaves him again just before the crucifixion. When Christ rose, these Gnostics described Christ as ascending with Sophia into the world or aeon, which will never pass away. Because this was the most powerful Gnostic influence on the early church, Irenaeus devotes a great deal of time towards describing the heresy of including Egyptian gods into Christian worship. Like the Babylonian and Sumerian gods of worship, this Egyptian worship system was being reestablished in Greece relied heavily upon the sun, moon, and stars. The solar system, and more specifically the zodiac, provided high priests access to powerful knowledge. The gift of Sophia. Using solar calculations, these priests would use numerologies to determine the powerful numbers, the paths of life, current and future events, and more. It is the same type of astrology used in Hindu temples or in Wiccan rituals of today. Its trail descends all the way back to the great pyramid of Egypt and before. Of the Valentinians, one person becomes a real threat to the church. Irenaeus describes Marcus and his ability to use this knowledge and these numbers to persuade many. Marcus was responsible for pulling several Christians out of the body of Christ and into Gnosticism. And he used basic numbers to do so. In the chapter, The Deceitful Arts and the Nefarious Practices of Marcus, Irenaeus describes him. But there is another among these heretics, Marcus by name, who boasts himself as having improved upon his master. He is a perfect adept in magical impostures, and by this means drawing a, away a great number of men, and not a few women. He has induced them to join themselves to him as one who has possessed the greatest knowledge and perfection, and who has received the highest power from the invisible and ineffable regions above. Thus it appears if he were really the precursor of Antichrist. By joining the buffooneries of Anaxilus, of the craftiness of his magi, as they are called, he is regarded by his senseless and cracked brain followers as working miracles by these means. That's in the book, Against Heresies, by Irenaeus. Irenaeus continues to describe his power, but he warns the church that Marcus himself was not in control. There is an elemental spirit involved. And that spirit had given Marcus the gift of prophecy. Not only prophecy, but Marcus apparently had an angel. The combination of the angel and the prophetic gift was deceiving many in the church and causing not only division, but severed limbs in the body of Christ. Like so many today, the early church was confused by the signs and wonders and did not heed instruction by Jesus and the apostles to test the prophecy. It appears, Irenaeus writes this, it appears profitable enough that this man possesses a demon as his familiar spirit, by means of whom he seems able to prophesy. 
Later, he writes about Marcus proclaiming, now, play, now the place of thy angel is among us. It behooves us to become one. Receive first from me and by me the gift of chaffs. Adorn thyself as a bride who is expecting her bridegroom, that thou mayest be what I am and I what thou art. Sound familiar? Using these elemental spirits and their associated demons from Egyptian worship, Marcus had found power in the number seven. Though the alphabet contained several later letters, Marcus fo focused upon numerical groupings of letters. Several other types and symbols and representations, Marcus focused attention to letters and numbers that contained the number seven and the number five. Using this strategy, Marcus grouped sevens and fives together, focusing the attention on the number seven. You see, there were eight gods in the Ogdode, but one of them had fallen. When Sophia joined with Christ, according to this Gnostic system, Christ ascended to the throne and then completed the number eight. Irenaeus writes, The other names which are to be uttered with respect and faith and reverence are, according to him, Erehotos and Siege, Pater and Athea. Now the entire number of this tetrad amounts to four and twenty letters. The name of Erethos himself contains seven letters. Siege, five. Pater, five. Eletheia, seven. If all of these be added together, twice five, twice seven, they complete the number twenty-four. In like manner, the second tetrad, the Logos and Zoe, Aphropos and Ecclesia, reveal the same number of elements. Moreover, the name of the Savior, which may be pronounced viz, Jesus, I-H-S-O-U-S, consists of six letters, but his unutterable name comprised of four and twenty letters. The name of Christ, the Son, and he gives the name in Greek, comprises the twelfth letter. But that which is unpronounceable in Christ contains thirty letters. And for this reason, he declares that F-I-E is Alpha and Omega, and he may indicate the dove, insomuch that this bird has the number in its name. Against heresies. You see, Marcus pointed out that names are powerful. And using the count of the letters written in the form of the name, each of the eight gods in Egyptian mythology were comprised of a triad, a grouping of three. As Marcus completed the eight triads, there were a total of 24 letters. <clears throat> Against heresies, Irenaeus also writes, Know then that the four and twenty letters, 24, which you possess are symbolical emanations of the three powers, three, that contain the entire number of the elements above. For you are able to reckon thus, that the nine mute letters are the images of Pater and Althea, because they are without voice, that is, of such nature as they cannot be uttered or pronounced. But the semi-vowels represent Logos and Zoe, because they are, as it were, midway between the consonants and the vowels, partaking in the nature of both. The vowels, again, are representative of Athropos and Ecclesia, insomuch as a voice proceeding from Athropos 
giving being for them all, for the sound of the voice imparted to them form. Thus then, the Logos and Zoe possess eight of these letters, Athropos and Ecclesia seven, Pater and Althea nine, but since the number allotted to each was unequal, he who existed in the Father came down, having been specifically sent by him from whom he was separated. Eight becomes seven. For the re-rectification of what had taken place in the unity of the Plumoras, being endowed with equality might develop all in one power which flows from all, a fountain. Thus that division, which only had seven letters, received the power of eight against heresies, Irenaeus. From this, Marcus had determined the power in the number seven. Seven deities, one fallen from grace. The seven were all powerful, and the church, according to this mythology, joined itself with the fallen to become one of the other seven. Seven plus one equals eight, eight deities. Irenaeus writes, he employed this as his instrument. As the, the siege of Marcus declares, the power of seven letters, in order that the fruit of the independent will of Akamoth be revealed. Consider this present epismon, he says. Him who is formed after the original epismon, as it were, being divided or cut into two parts, and remaining outside, who by his own power and wisdom, through means of which he produced him by himself, gave life to this world, consisting of seven powers, after the likeness of Hebnomad, and so formed it, that the soul of everything is visible. Again, Irenaeus against heresies. But Irenaeus pointed out the nonsense of the teaching of Marcus. While he was achieving supernatural powers using the numbers and able to prophesy to perform signs and wonders, Marcus was a deceiver. Marcus struggled to tell the truth. Irenaeus writes, and the first heaven indeed pronounces Alpha next to the Epsilon, the third Eta, the fourth which is also in the midst of seven, unders the sound of Iota, the fifth Omicron, the sixth Upsilon, the seventh which is the fourth from the middle, utters the elegant Omega. As the siege of Marcus, taking a great deal of nonsense, but listen to this, but uttering no word of truth, confidently asserts. Again, that's Irenaeus in his book Against Heresies. While many in the cult of William Branham struggle and do not realize the source of the powerful spell that they are under, we find the same exact strategy used by Branham that Marcus employed. Branham also taught this, the power and significance of the number seven. Seven was referenced in several places, including his name, and his comparison between his last name and Abraham's name. It is believed that William Branham's middle name was originally Marion, M-A-R-I-O-N, which is six letters, which was a very common name and a county in Kentucky, but later changed to M-A-R-R-I-O-N, seven letters. And by doing so, each of his names, first, middle, and last, equal the number seven. 
When you examine all of the teachings of the different Jesus that Branham proclaimed, it almost seems if William Branham read this book against heresies and started preaching from the dark side of the text. While Irenaeus condemned Marcus for describing a Jesus that was just a man, that was filled with Sophia, who became God, but later a man when Sophia left, Branham describes the very same thing. He says this, 1959, Remember, Jesus was just a man. God was in him. There come a time when the Spirit was leading the Lamb, the Dove. That's tape index 59, 1220M, Conference with God. Later, he says, in the sermon, It is the Rising of the Sun. He says, Now notice this quickening power, Zoe. Bring the word, the mind that was in Christ was in you then. I'm trying to show you that. When he raised, when God raised Jesus from the dead, he raised you up also and quickened to life with him. Now you're quickened to life, although you were just an attribute in his thoughts. But God saw all in him at the finish. See, when God looked down at the body, listen to this. The spirit left him in the garden of Gethsemane. He had to die a man. If you've listened to any sermon by William Branham, you'll quickly recognize the use of the number seven. But I'm not sure you caught exactly how many times that this number is used and how many supernatural or spiritual references. The number seven is used almost 2,500 times on recorded tape, not to mention the many household idols that contain seven elements. It is no mystery where Branham got his theology on the zodiac and the pyramids. These were the exact forms of worship in Egypt that descended into Gnosticism. Branham says this, 1953, what's he doing? He's writing his first Bible. The first Bible that was ever written in the skies, the zodiac. It starts out with the virgin, that's how he comes first. It ends up with Leo the lion, the second coming. And he's writing his first Bible. The second Bible written was written by Enoch and put in the pyramid. Notice there are three Bibles, the triad, and deities for pagan worship in Egypt. The Bible foretells of the coming false prophet. And when you find your first prophecy given by William Branham that has failed, it should be enough to make you flee for your lives. But unfortunately, for many blinded, this is not what happens. Just as Irenaeus describes in the early church, as Marcus employed sorcery to cause Christians to sever themselves from the body of Christ, many in the cult will choose to ignore prophecy to believe signs and wonders. The Bible also warns of sorcery. The very strategies that William Branham used in his sermons were the ones that Paul wrote in his letters. They were the same when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den and Balaam rose against the children of Israel. It is the same sorcery used in Egypt by Janus and Jambres. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. 
Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The book of Acts describes people using this power. But when true Christianity came into their lives, they surrendered their hearts to God, to Christ, and they burned their books of numerologies and sorcery. Acts 19, 7-19 says, And this became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many who are now believers came, confessing, divulging in their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Think of that. Colossians 2.18 speaks of these Gnostics and their influence. Even as Paul wrote his letters, the elemental spirits were rising up against the church, sending fallen spirit-filled men to deceive and divide the body of Christ. These are words that all should heed. They come from Colossians 2.18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Oh.